Hi, I'm Moses Apostaticus. Over the last year, my thinking has gone through some big changes. I've gone from describing myself as a civilizationist to becoming a nationalist. Now, for some of my readers, that's been a little troubling. And for some even, I can see a little bit scary. And so I wanted to make this video to talk about some of the problems with how we think about nationalism in the West and why we don't need to be afraid of Western people discovering or asserting national ethnic identity. It's not something that we need to be afraid of at all. And in fact, it's the only thing that's going to be able to push back against globalism and restore Western civilization. Now, you would have seen the memes that came out um, over the last couple of months uh, using Lord of the Rings movies to uh, highlight uh, the realities around the Muslim invasions of Europe and how it's being, how it's being uh, made easy by the cultural Marxist mentality of the journalists, the politicians and the rulers there, there in Europe. Now, one of the things about the Lord of the Rings, which is so astounding, is, is the, the interpretive power it has for our time today. And I don't know how Tolkien did it. I, I wonder if he channeled that story because it's, it's so profoundly true in a, in a mythic way about what we're going through today uh, with the collapse of what certainly seems to me anyway to be the collapse of Western civilization. Now, Tol Tolkien himself was a professor of medieval, uh, I think, Norse mythology, just from memory. So he was very familiar with the stories, the traditions uh, and the symbols of the of Western literature and Western culture. And and I think he was able to, to plumb the depths of the Western collective subconscious and pull out a story for our generation to to warn us about what's going to happen in our time if we don't if we don't remember who we are and and unite against the threats that face us now if we think about the lord of the rings um, metaphor then i ultimately uh, the most important question in my view which which comes along is is the the symbol at the heart of those stories is is the ring of power itself and what is the ring of power then for us if we're applying the Lord of the Rings to our situation? The answer that you have to that question will determine what you believe is the, the way forward that we should take. In my view, the ring of power is government. It's the use of government power to achieve an ideological objective. And when we look across modern history, it has been the pattern that whenever an ideological movement or an ideological vanguard is always a tiny minority who actually capture the power of the state, when they do that and they seek to use the power of government to bring about a, a utopian ideological objective, we get Mordor every time. It has never been successful. And so it's in my view then, if we wish to escape modernity with, with all of its spiritual emptiness and its atrocities and its meaninglessness and purposelessness, if we wish to escape this modern paradigm, we must throw away that ring of power and we must abandon the belief that we can use government to achieve a utopian objective. Now, the root of our problem 
like it is across the stories actually when you look at the the lord of the rings stories especially in the first two novels in the series the problem for a lot of those peoples is false thinking it, whether it's a worm tongue getting in the ear of the king of rohan and stealing away his hope or the elves believing that the men can't be trusted and and nobody trusting the dwarves or uh, the, the ruler of Gondor uh, giving into despair, or indeed Saruman um, still uh, convincing people that he was working against Mordor, whereas actually he'd been co-opted. We see that across our political class, our leadership, our media, basically everybody who went to university in the West, we see exactly that problem. We have been swimming in a sea of lies in the West for at least 50 years, maybe, maybe, maybe centuries. And those lies, that false thinking, it's caught up to us. So the, the, I, I, it's my argument that the first thing we have to do before we can stand against this threat that's going to destroy Western civilization if we don't win, the first thing we must do is get rid of false thinking, get rid of lies, and come back to reality, restore our hope, remember who we are, and only then will we be able to push back against, let's call it globalism, but the forces that are seeking to destroy us. One of the core problems in our thinking, I believe, is this neurotic fear that Europeans have been programmed to have of European ethnic nationalism. We've been programmed since the cradle that if white people assert an ethnic identity in the same way that every other people on earth does, and in the same way that every people who has ever existed throughout history does, we've been programmed to believe that if white people do that, then immediately Auschwitz will break out everywhere upon the earth. It's a lie. It's madness. It's not true. There's just no basis in evidence for this this uh, hysterical belief on the part of many that if if european people assert that they have an ethnic identity that immediately we all become literally hitler we need to abandon this false belief because we've lost our sense of identity we've reached a point where most western people now deny that we even exist as distinct peoples. You can't continue for much longer if you believe that. This is not a friendly world. This is not a diverse, tolerant, uh, utopian world. This is a hostile world and we are hated. So if we don't recall who we are, if we don't remember to stand somewhere, then we won't stand at all. And one day we will be just just uh, uh, written into the, fig to the pages of history. We'll be gone. And it's, it's my argument to try and allay this fear. It's, it's my argument that it's not nationalism that causes atrocity. It's the government. It's not nationalism that we need to fear, white nationalism or, or Australian or English or Swedish nationalism. It's not any form of European nationalism that we need to fear. What we should rightly fear is the use of the power of the state to achieve an ideological objective. We shouldn't fear nationalism. We should fear, let's, call, let's say, socialism or, or, or any use of government to achieve that type of aim. Now, many uh, civic nationalists who, who hear such an argument would 
would respond, I, I believe, that um, Western identity is multiracial. Uh, a civic nationalist would say, well, yes, Western people have an identity. Australians, I'll talk in terms of Australia because I'm Australian. A civic nationalist would say, yes, Australians have an identity and it's the values, the, the language, the people have to speak English, it's the Christian heritage of Australia, but Australia's identity is a multiracial one. Now, that's a lie. It's, it, that's never been true for any other people group in history. Why is it true for us? why are we pretending that it has to be true or else we're somehow evil? It's just not the case. There were two main races who came and conquered, settled and civilized Australia. And it was the British and the Irish. Um, those are the people groups from which the Australian race was forged. Now, ethnicity is not just race. Ethnicity is comprised, as I see it, of four components. There's language, culture and shared history, faith and race. Now, all of those four components comprise ethnicity. They do so for the Chinese. They do so for the Japanese, the, the Bangladeshis um, uh, in the state, different states in India, which are largely different nations anyway, and Israel. For all, for all people groups throughout history, ethnic identity has been based on those four platforms. And you can't keep denying the reality of racial differences just to try and appease some sort of um, universalist conception of, of what it means uh, to belong to a nation. We can't keep doing that. You can't have a nation of 50 million yellow people. You just can't. And you, just as you couldn't, you couldn't have a China of, let's, let's say, um, uh, 8 billion Africans migrated into China over a course of a couple of decades. Because the Chinese elite became obsessed that, uh, China, that their history had just been the, the tyranny of yellow men over, over every other people group. And it was, they were horribly, horribly racist and patriarchal and evil. And so what they needed to do was become multicultural, what, which actually meant multiracial as well, and, and bring in large numbers of other groups so that then they could demonstrate their diversity, become tolerant, and, um, and get rid of this problem of, of evil Chinese um, ethnocentrism. Let's imagine that China had that madness, which we've had for the last 50 years, and 8 billion Africans moved to China. And let's say they learned to bow, they learned to speak Chinese, and they even learned uh, Confucian norms. Are they Chinese? Of course they're not. So we are on a trajectory to destroy Australia. And when people in the alt-right make that case, they're not, they're not being um, hyperbolic. They're not, they're not being um, uh, insincere. They're, they're, they're just stating the facts. It's just true. And it's just very difficult to understand why to civic nationalists, I would just ask this question, why is it only white countries that cannot have a racial component to their ethnicity? As, as our, we, we had a politician here in Australia 20 years ago who pointed out that Australia was in danger of being swamped by Asians. She was right. When you walk through our big cities, she was right. So when it comes to my question, as Pauline would say, please explain. Look, how can it be that only white countries can't have that racial component 
to their ethnic identity. But every other people group throughout all of history has always believed that. Even people groups who didn't have a homeland. If if we were to look at the uh, barbarians who overcame the Western Roman Empire, groups like the Visigoths, the Vandals, the Huns, and the Franks, they didn't have a homeland, but they knew who they were as a people. And they knew that they looked a certain way. It was all part of one big package. But what we've done in this postmodern period is we've split all of these components of ethnicity up and the civic nationalist approach has by by removing the the biological the racial component of ethnic identity or pretending that it doesn't exist because it's just pretending everybody really knows that it does but by pretending that it doesn't exist we've created a a, a distorted worldview and that is being leveraged against us it is being taken advantage of by people who hate us we have enemies, ethnic, ancestral enemies. You may have forgotten who they are, but they haven't forgotten. And and they come from cultures who have very, very long memories. And they, to them, it seems like their God is letting them in. And why wouldn't they believe that? Because we've become so bloody mad. Civic nationalism itself, and I think um, criticisms by the alt-right of civic nationalism, I think can be a little bit superficial. Because I'm not going to just say to civic nationalists, oh, you guys are cucking out on race, you're cowards, man up. I think that's that's not really that helpful. The problem with civic nationalism is it's a, a modern, if not a postmodern, invention. And, and civic nationalism ultimately serves the interests of the state at the expense of the people. You see, when civic nationalism makes national identity out of the values of a people, which are universal, that those values are the same everywhere, or the political system that a particular nation has, or the emblems of the state, all of that, what it serves to do is it redirects the, the natural and eternal love that humans will always have for their tribe, it redirects that traditional, real form of nationalism upward to the state. And it, it, civic nationalism is a way for governments to capture people's love of their own people group and read through deception, redirect that up towards worship of the state and the identification by citizens by members of the nation, by the people, their identification with the state instead of with each other. And it's pernicious. It's, it is not good for a nation, and it only serves the interests of the powerful and ultimately serves the interests of the elite who, um, who see us as cattle to be farmed. And by, by doing that redirection, uh, it, has, it has given so much power to government that now government is everywhere in your life. I, I find it hard to believe that there are still people in the West today who, who think that we're free. We're not free. We, you have no sovereignty. You are not personally sovereign. Your, your, your community that you live in is not sovereign and your nation is not sovereign. Uh, everything has been subsumed by the power of the state and the financial oligarchs who stand behind the state. And if we're going to escape that, that paradigm, if we're going to restore um, not only national sovereignty, but personal sovereignty, so that families have sovereignty over 
over the the estate or the house or the land that they own so so that we have that sovereignty back over our minds if we're going to do that we have to come back to a whole and complete basis for our identity and that means coming back to a pre-modern ethnic identity now with all of that said there are nazis there are people who have uh, a, a particular um, ethnocentric ideology. And, and what I would say with regards to that issue is it's not the ethnocentrism of, uh, let's say, national socialists, neo-Nazis, whatever term you want to use. None of those terms are really helpful, but let's just use those terms. It's, it's not the ethnocentrism of such people that is dangerous. It is the willingness, the desire of those people to capture the power of the state and use that to reshape the nation in terms of their ideological vision. It's, it's not because they're nationalist, it's because they're socialist. That's what makes such movements dangerous. And if we're going to be afraid of the ghosts of 1945 being resurrected, can ghosts be resurrected? Haunting us, let's say. If we're going to be afraid of those uh, ghosts of 1945 coming back, which I, I, I think is happening. We thought it was all buried, but it never was. And what wasn't dealt with at the end of the Second World War, this issue of ethnic identity, is coming back. And a lot of people find it terrifying, and you shouldn't. You should not find that terrifying. What you should find terrifying is anyone who wants to capture the power of government and use it to achieve their ideological objective. And we already have people in power who've done that. So rather than, than being so frightened of, um, of groups uh, running around asserting an ethnic identity, instead be very, very frightened of the cultural Marxists who right now have controlled the education system for 50 years. They control every organ of power. And they want to destroy our civilization. Redirect your fear towards them because that's far more rational. Now, socialism, I, 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 I despise socialism and I'll never change my mind on that. And it's because socialism is always a front for the globalist money power to take over the state. And so socialism provides a means by which the international financial oligarchy, the, the tip of the pyramid, the tip of the financial pyramid to capture the power of government and use it to farm the productive wealth of the workers of the world. Because socialism relies upon government debt. You might think that socialism is about you getting a handout or getting a leg up or something. It's not at all. Socialism serves the interests of international money. And it's that force which is behind the governments behind the politicians it's behind the media it runs the deep state which wants the wars in the middle east it's all the same agenda and so we must become aware of how socialism has been used to predate upon us and to turn us into to slaves on a global debt plantation you know marx's karl marx's work was full of a lot of half truths and you see this a lot amongst these ideological movements of modernity, these, um, these utopian secular religions that, ha that have caused so much havoc and caused so much death um, and, um, and, and spiritual emptiness and just uh, soulless materialism. All of the consequences of these ideologies have just been so bad. And at the root of them, you'll see a lot of half-truths. 
One of the half-truths that we see in Marx's work has to do uh, with uh, owning the means of production. Now, Marx puts this right at the heart of his economic theory, that the workers must seize ownership of the means of production. And it was half-true. But but ultimately, of course, it's a deception, like all elements of Marxism. And you, if you if you don't believe me about socialism serving the interests of not only globalism, but also uh, the international financial elite, go and have a look at what Marx's planks were that he was arguing for. He, Marx was an advocate for central banking, which is at one of the, the, the key mechanisms that the money power use to control the governments and then farm the people of the world. He was also an advocate of an income tax. So when you're making your, your mortgage repayments for your house and you think you're just paying back the, the, the bank money um, that they already had, it's, it's all based upon a delusion. The money was created when the bank loaned it to you. And you are then producing real wealth with your labor and giving it back to the bank in the form of interest repayments. And the bank that you're paying it back to is at least partly owned by one of the top international banks, which I believe ultimately is owned by a very, very small number of families at the top of that pyramid. You're being farmed. And when you pay your taxes to government, most of that those tax payments now are going to cover debts that were built up over previous decades with the gives me dats that were handed out um, and long, long spent um, by, by people before. So now you're paying taxes to pay back that government debt, which ultimately was borrowed from exactly those same uh, international financiers who are harvesting your mortgage repayments. You're, you know, I, I like to say it a lot because I think that it's it's a really good summary of how things stand. You know, on, on the global debt plantation, we're not even really slaves. We're the cotton. We're, we're, we're the raw material. And you, the wealth that you are producing, which is yours, which if you were personally sovereign, you would get to keep, is instead being taken by, by a shadowy elite who sees you as nothing more than human cattle. And when Marx said that workers needed to take back ownership of the means of production, that was a lie. What, what the peoples of the world need to take back is ownership of the means of debt creation. We need to take back our sovereign control over currency creation especially if we're going to have debt-based fiat currencies. If, if we're going to have these types of uh, debt-based currencies, then absolutely currency creation needs to come back to, this, to the sovereign control of the people of the nation. I think even governments having control of it is no good because the bankers will find another way to take control of that. It must be that we, we, can't, we as sovereign people have that right and that control over our economy because um, otherwise uh, we're, we're, we're really just, um, uh, just it's, it's a futile endeavor to try and, try and change the paradigm if we don't do that. Now, modern socialist authoritarianism will produce a tyrant every time, every time. But traditional small government authoritarianism will produce a king. Now, I'm not a fan of democracy. I, I, I see democracy as dysgenic. When, when you give the, all the people the right to vote, it gives the, the vicious and the unproductive and the lazy the means of plundering the virtuous and the productive. And 
and if you're if you're a tax if you're a tax donkey um in this system then you then you know what i'm talking about there i'm, I'm not a fan of that um and but neither am i a fan of some type of totalitarian dictator or um a leader coming along who to try and fix everything through the power of his will it's that's that's madness I'm much more favorably inclined towards pre-modern systems of government, which were very authoritarian, but were also very small. So government was very strict. It was not something that you wanted to deal with, but it was over there. And people in their communities with their families, they had sovereignty over where they lived. And I think that's a much better goal for us to aim for than, than falling for yet another modern delusion that if we just find the right ideological system and use it to transform the state, um, to use, use the power of the state to transform society, then, then we'll have the perfect society. You won't. You'll just have um, an ocean of blood and a mountain of corpses. And we can't afford that again. We've, we've been through, in the West, we've been through two horrendous world wars. And the flower of Western man died in the trenches of World War I and then on the battlefields of World War II. We were, we were bled pretty much dry. If we have another major conflagration like that, it's, it's, it's over. There, there's, there's, there's really no more hope for the West. This is a different type of battle and we have to, we have to win it internally um, rather than trying to go out and chase dragons. So we must restore reality in our thinking. We have to come back to a true and organic form of nationalism. We have to remember that it's about the identity of the people. It's never about the state. A nation is always its people and never its government. And this, this trick, this sleight of hand that's been performed on us where we've been made to identify with government has been a, a horrible, horrible uh, situation. We must abandon that. And we will have no sovereignty. We will not have personal sovereignty. We won't have sovereignty in our communities and we won't have national sovereignty until we reject these lies of modernity, until we reject that false thinking that we saw allegorized so well by Tolkien in his stories. We must first see reality clearly and take a stand in it and for it. Only then can we begin to push back against these forces of darkness that are threatening us on so many fronts. The only way to break free of slavery, a slavery of the mind, is to come back to what is real. And in a traditional form of nationalism, is the only way to push back against globalism. And that involves a basis in ethnic identity. And a part of that is race. It's just the way it is. It doesn't mean you hate anyone. It doesn't mean that, um, that uh, you know, immediately we're going to start goose-stepping um, down, down the main street in parades. It's just not going to happen. But we're going to remember who we are and it'll be glorious. Because the spirit of 1776 won't stop the frogs turning gay. It won't work. It won't work. Don't fear it. If you're alt light out there and you've made it all the way through the video, don't fear it. Embrace nationalism. Embrace it. Instead, reject anyone who's, who believes that they have the right to control the power of the state and use it for some sort of ideological objective. Reject that and instead embrace nationalism. Embrace your identity and become who you are. If you enjoyed that video, you might like to check out some of my other videos or my writing at restoringaustralia.net.